You're listening to Deal by Deal, a McGuire Woods independent sponsor podcast. Deal by Deal invites you to conversations with experienced independent sponsors and other private equity professionals. Join McGuire Woods partners Greg Hover, Jeff Brooker, and Rebecca Brophy as they explore middle market private equity M&A to provide you with timely insights and relevant takeaways. Hi, this is Greg Hover, and welcome to Episode 5 of Deal by Deal, an independent sponsored podcast. Happy that you could join us today. Just a quick intro to what we're going to be chatting about, and then a couple housekeeping matters. First, I'm excited to welcome my M&A partners, Rebecca Brophy and Jeff Brooker, for a quick download session. The three of us sure just kind of get a chance to catch up and discuss what we're seeing in the market and kind of look ahead towards a white-hot end of the year for M&A activity and also discuss the impacts of the Delta variant on, on M&A deal-making. I hope you find our lawyer's perspective interesting there. It's always good to catch up with those, too. Then we're excited to welcome Ryan Graham and Dan Hopsler from Dune Glass Capital. Dune Glass is an independent sponsor that's very active in the healthcare space, and I'm joined for that interview by Tom DeSplinter, who's an M&A partner of mine in our Chicago office. Excited for that interview as well. Before we jump into those segments, just a few notes for the audience. We're excited about our independent sponsor conference coming up here in October. Before we had to pause for a year in 2020, the independent sponsor conference for the last several years has been very well attended over 800 guests, I believe, in in 2019. And all attendees are are either capital providers or independent sponsors. And we dedicate the first day exclusively to, to speed networking and other events where we connect capital providers with independent sponsors. And then day two is filled with uh, panels and other activities. So I just want to put in a plug for that event. People really seem to enjoy it. And, you know, please contact any McGuire Woods lawyer that's on this podcast. If you'd like more information, we're happy to send you the invite. We run that event on on essentially a a break-even basis. So the the cost is, I think, relatively modest compared to the the benefit um, that, that the attendees get. So excited for that. It's Tuesday, October 19th in Dallas, and Wednesday, October 20th, both in Dallas, and it should be great. One other quick plug, at that conference, we're going to be unveiling the independent sponsor deal survey that myself, Jeff Brooker, and John Finger have been working hard on. It is the largest survey of its kind, almost 300 respondents told us all sorts of information about deal economics, management fees, closing fees, promote dead deal costs, et cetera. So we're putting the finishing touches on that. We're excited to unveil that at a panel in Dallas and then subsequently roll that out to attendees. And before we start, one more note. As you listen to Jeff, Rebecca, and I discuss how exciting and action-packed the end of the year is going to be, there's a lot of discussion about bandwidth and uh, people running out of bandwidth. But but rest assured, McGuire Woods is open for business, happy to discuss any year-end transactions. I, I don't want people to get scared. We, uh, us lawyers will always find some time to, uh, to get some work done and to chat with newer existing clients about year-end deals. So with that, we'll jump into the episode. Looking forward to it. 
two topics that have been top of mind for me recently, and they're sort of conflicting in different ways, are as we sit here in early September, the Delta variant continues to rear its head and impact daily life and, and have you know, serious impact on, on society and on the, the M&A world that we live in. And so I have been still thinking about how the Delta variant kind of impacts M&A transactions, closing conditions, et cetera. And the other theme that, that I've been thinking about recently is the year-end craziness that all of us M&A practitioners are expecting whether it's lawyers, RWI professionals, accountants, or deal makers such as independent sponsors. And, and so, anyway, glad Rebecca and Jeff could join me to talk about that. Some of the things on the, on the Delta variant front that I've been thinking about on deals really surround conditionality of closing. Uh, we've got a couple transactions here where we are thinking about you know, should we make our transaction a bifurcated sign and close where we sign at a purchase agreement in the short term and then spend weeks or, you know, months like chasing landlord consents, talking to employees and getting other consents like that. That's a position that the buyer doesn't typically like to be in because it, it reduces buyers' optionality and ability to pivot if the world changes or if their financing changes or anything changes during that interim period, but especially as we, we look in a world where new mandates are occurring on a daily basis, that becomes particularly uncomfortable from a buyer's perspective. But from a seller's perspective, the alternative approach, which is a simultaneous sign and close, also makes the seller uncomfortable because there's no binding obligation of, of the buyer to close the deal in several weeks or months if X, Y, and Z occur. Those are some of the discussions I've been having recently. And I don't know, Rebecca or Jeff, has the theme of the Delta variant kind of crept into any of those discussions you've been having or, or other provisions of your M&A agreement? You know, great. Overall, I think that most of my clients are still looking to try to push for simultaneous signing closes and viewing the any impact from the Delta variant as being something that is going to be reboundable, just like the initial, you know, kind of pandemic that we're still living through. Although I do appreciate that for deals that cannot be structured as a simultaneous sign and close or where there is just a potential for there to be a massive disruptive disruption if there is a shutdown in certain industries that maybe are not as resilient, if there's another shutdown, that there is going to be enhanced discussions at this point around earnouts and around maybe even potential for deals moving a little bit more slowly as we see in the next month or two play out, all with the overlay that I think there's concern, again, this year, like there was last year, that for deals that don't close in 2021, we're potentially looking at a different tax regime in 2022. I've seen an increased urgency among sellers with deals right now. There's been concern about the lockdowns potentially scaring away the buyers or more so the lenders, there's been a, a strong push to get those deals closed as soon as possible. So that way, the uncertainty and potential disruption of the Delta variant and the other variants won't cause our closing to go off the rails. That's the, the main thing I've seen is just an urgency today. I think 
all the COVID provisions that we had developed. And I think Rebecca was kind of a leader here developing a suite of, of provisions. Folks have continued to put those into the documents, and I think they're important. I don't know that Delta variant necessarily changes the language that I'm seeing go into purchase agreements yet. I think all that language that we originally developed is still relevant and still should go in there. But, you know, it's obviously a pretty fluid situation and one that we continue to think about and monitor as we work on any transaction. Yeah, yeah, no, it's interesting. As you mentioned, earnouts, Rebecca and Jeff, like, you know, which provision should go in the agreement? I guess at least here as we sit looking at the Delta variant, we, we know we have a little bit more visibility into what, you know, an escalation of lockdowns and things like that will look like. And I think that when I'm drafting and thinking about earnouts in, in this context, that becomes the question is like, what does the future look like and how would a lockdown impact an, an earnout? Like if you're looking forward over the next, if it's based on the next year's worth of earnings, if there's some event that causes a lockdown, should that pause the measurement of the earnout or is that like the exact thing you're trying to protect against in the earnout? It's all it's all kind of inter interwoven. And it's interesting, like like I think that if it weren't for this being maybe towards the end of the year and people thinking about a potential new tax regime, maybe there'd be a general slowdown on deals from a buyer's perspective. But I'm I haven't really been seeing a, a slowdown on buyers wanting to close deals even I know Jeff, you mentioned that sellers are trying to accelerate. I haven't seen buyers kind of decelerate in the face of, of the Delta variant. Have either of you seen a, a buyer client say, you know, wait, let's actually wait, you know, a couple of weeks or a couple of months and sort of see what the end of this wave looks like? I haven't seen that. I've, in my experience, deal volume continues to be pretty much unprecedented across really all of the M&A industry across industry segments, et cetera, I have not seen a slowdown. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that maybe wrapping up on the on the Delta variant, I also haven't seen any provisions that are specific to this Delta variant wave in any of my agreements. And it sounds like, as far as when we're counseling our buyer clients, that the typical approach of using a simultaneous sign and close structure in middle market deals that don't require a split sign and close like for HSR or other purposes, simultaneous sign and close is probably the predominant approach. It makes a lot of sense because it's really hard to draft around all the different eventualities of what may happen over the next month or two. You'd have to really think about closing conditions, interim operating covenants, what does it mean to operate in the ordinary course of business when there are escalating mandates going on. So it, it sounds like maybe our, our legal documentation playbook isn't changing too much, but it's just something to continue to monitor. Would that be accurate from your, your own perspective? Yeah, Greg, I agree with that. I think that in terms of the buyer's position, that if they like the deal, then the way to get at seeing how this plays out is potentially looking at an earnout as opposed to a non-simultaneous signing close. 
again, the concern being that sellers are going to balk at a non-simultaneous sign and close with the conditions that are really going to help a buyer. And there still are a lot of very active buyers in this market. From a seller's perspective, a, listen, I would not counsel a seller to accept a non-simultaneous sign and close unless there was a really viable reason, as you mentioned, HSR or just some really material contract that needed to consent outside of COVID. So I think that we're having a situation right now where, practically speaking, we've seen that much of the economy really survived through the first wave of shutdowns, maybe with some blips and maybe with some exceptions for a couple of industries. And folks are not you know, looking forward to Delta if there's another set of shutdowns. But I think some of the fear of the unknown that we were facing in March and April and May of 2020 when credit markets really froze and deal activity plummeted for a few months, I, I would be surprised to see that happen if there was another set of shutdowns for Delta. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Entirely agree. I haven't seen this creep its way into closing conditions. And frankly, Greg, the thought that you had on earnout is a really smart one regarding should it pause or should it be, if there's a lockdown, should there be some type of change? That's a really smart, thoughtful approach, but I haven't seen it, frankly, appear in any deals yet. And it cuts both ways, right? It's the buyer wants to kind of hedge a bit and understand that they're getting what they're paying for. But the seller, if they're confident that the the business is going to bounce back in a in a a lockdown would only be a temporary blip. It wouldn't be fair to have a lockdown within that earnout period that could artificially skew results in a way that doesn't really truly value the business. So that's a hard problem to solve there. And I don't I haven't seen someone try to solve it yet, but I, I'm sure that's coming on the pipe at some point. In a way, it goes to maybe a third trend that, that I'm seeing, and, and you all can let me know if you're seeing this as well, but this just remains a seller's market, and you only typically you get more creative where the bargaining power is a little more even in the transactions. And put another way, where sellers are a part of hyper-competitive auction processes, the sellers are going to dictate the terms. And the terms are going to be relatively straightforward and favor the seller. There's not going to be burnout provisions. There's going to be limited recourse. There's going to be rep and warranty insurance. And it'll likely be no seller indemnity in structure. So for better or worse, we maybe aren't seeing a lot of these really thoughtful provisions because it's a white hot market and deals are just moving quickly. Thoughts on that hypothesis? That may be the case. I, this is all, I mean, it all boils down to leverage all the time when you're thinking about deal terms. And I do have a seller right now that is not the sexiest asset. So it didn't get the deal terms that you would get if you had the really attractive company that you're selling. And so I think there's probably a lot of independent sponsors who are looking at the, you know, a hairier kind of situations. And so there may be, a little bit more leeway for them to pull on some of the, use the leverage that they have to come up with things that maybe we're not seeing as much and might cause us to put on our creative hats a little bit and and think a little harder about ways to bridge those gaps. For me, that's the fun part. That's a fantastic point that, uh, yes, we're covering some topics that are kind of M&A themes generally, but 
but within the independent sponsor world, we do get to be a little bit more thoughtful. That, that's a great point. Just to pivot as we're all right around Labor Day, and now we're all pivoting towards the end of the year, maybe not discuss around substantive legal provisions, but just as we all start to gear up towards the year-end crush, want to get this group's view on, on what the next couple months are going to look like. I've heard, I think the general consensus is that it will be very busy. I've heard some horror stories that rep and warranty insurance, for example, is not going to be available in, in large part for deals that are seeking to close by the end of the year. I don't know if there's any truth to that. I've heard of some independent sponsors saying, we're basically not really even going to look at deals that will close by the end of the year because we don't think we can find lawyers or accountants or RWI to, uh, you know, to staff the deals. I know that we are busy at McGuire Woods, but not so busy that we'd be turning away work. Yet, but have you heard any other uh, Rebecca horror stories or anecdotes along those lines? I think for about the past four or five months, the Q of E market has been, particularly with with the big accounting firms, has been backed up to a point that I've never personally seen in my career. It is taking two, three, four times as long to get a Q of E done as I've seen it take typically, unless there's a very strong client relationship and or significant strings being pulled. So that to me is an out-the-gate timing concern for anything year-end would be getting getting QB by that, done by that time. I think representations and warranty insurance market continues to be stretched. I think by last year, if the deal wasn't in by mid to late November, it probably wasn't being bound by the end of the year. And I suspect this year is gonna be as tight, if not tighter. I do think that all the service providers that are within this market are pretty tight and stretched. So I think in terms of just people getting ahead of what they're going to need, if they really are intent on a year-end close, it would be a smart thing to get into kind of the queues of the various service providers so you don't miss that window because of a lack of queue in the, of the or something along those lines. fully agree that that's going to be a practical issue, most likely, as we gear towards year-end. Yeah, I've got some interesting anecdotes on that front too about bandwidth. And I was talking to folks today and I was talking to a banker that was effectively saying that sellers right now are being counseled that if they haven't started a process yet, that they shouldn't expect to get done by the end of the year. That's probably unprecedented. Seeing the same things in the QOV markets that a lot of folks are hearing, you know, six weeks, 60 days, those kind of delays that even pick up the pen. Sometimes, unless you know you're a rep- important repeat client to the the accounting firm and can kind of push some leverage to get pushed up in their queue, and then in rep and warranty insurance, same thing. I'm seeing, especially in smaller deals, very limited interest. The smaller end of the market, where maybe you'll get one or two bids, and the rest of the market will say effectively too busy, not enough premium to make it worth our time. And then that corollary to that, a really interesting corollary, I think, is the I'm starting to see underwriters understand that they have that leverage and use it to push more onerous, you know, more insurer friendly and less buyer friendly terms into policies. And the most recent one came that came back 
had you know the most exclusions I think I've ever seen on a policy and some positions that were quite aggressive from the insurer. And that I get the sense is that insurer knows that we just don't have a lot of options and it makes good business sense for them to get a good the deal they can get under the circumstances. Yeah, that's an interesting trend that we'll see if it stays that way. All interesting things. We will continue to run through a wall for our good clients and for new good clients. But yeah, the entire M&A industry is definitely feeling the, the strain on bandwidth uh, you know, on all fronts. That's super interesting. And is the driver that, that you're seeing or hearing the potential change in tax law or just a general push to get things done by the end of the year? I think it's a lot of factors. There's, I think the tax pieces of one of the pieces. I think there was a bit of a slowdown during COVID for some businesses that wanted to sell but didn't get done because of the slowdown. So there was a, a few, some of that deal flow is getting pushed, you know, is getting delayed. And so we're feeling that now. I think there's a lot of baby boomers that want to retire and we're seeing a lot of that. So that, if that's, if that trend would continue then until that whole baby boom generation kind of fully retires. I think the debt markets are, you know, with the low interest rates, it's a really attractive debt environment. I think there's a lot of capital. There's a lot of people who've made a lot of money over the last several years, a ton of capital chasing deals. Those financial professionals, they don't get paid to sit on the sidelines. They get paid to deploy capital. So they have to find smart ways to do it. And, you know, I think it's multi-factor. I think, I don't think there's any one thing that's driving it. It'll be interesting to see how long does this last? And is this a, is this a new normal or is this a temporary high in the system? And somebody smarter than me might know the answer, but I guess we'll find out. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, on, on the tax front, I was just speaking with one of the co-chairs of our private wealth group, and they're seeing a lot of action within their group. That being said, there's no formal bill that's been proposed at this point. So they think they're really going to be going into hyperdrive if and when that occurs. But I think that one of the things that has me a little bit more focused on it is as, as we thought about this with the past election and, you know, would the tax regime change? I think there was some doubt that a president would come in and uh, Congress and put in a bill that was retroactive to a point where people could not make changes to react to it. And then I, I think if you look back a couple months, the initial Biden proposals actually were retroactive so that people could not pivot and sell assets, et cetera. They'd be captured by the newly proposed rates. I mean, none of that was formal, but it just signaled the idea that you may need to act soon and, and that things could look back and be retroactive. So all interesting. I think we're about out of time. This, this was really fun, Rebecca and Jeff, to really just to catch up with you. I know we've all been running 100 miles per hour. So thanks for your time and thanks for sharing some of these trends that you've been seeing. Appreciate it. Thanks for your time to Greg and Jeff. Look forward to talking to you guys again soon. For the next segment of the podcast, we're excited to welcome Dan Hostler and Ryan Graham from Duneglass Capital. Duneglass is an independent sponsor that is active in the healthcare space, and we're excited to have them join us and tell us what they're seeing out there in the market and a little bit about their history and their approach. 
I'm also joined by Tom DeSplinter, who's one of my M&A partners in the Chicago office. Tom, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice? Sure. Thanks, Craig. As Greg said, I'm in the private equity group here in Chicago, uh, focus on middle market, upper middle market private equity firms, both on the buy and sell side. i uh, worked on you know, various sectors across industries from healthcare, technology, retail, manufacturing, services. Here at McGuire Woods, I've done uh, quite a bit of healthcare given you know, how, how excellent our, our healthcare group is and have had you know, an opportunity to work on quite a few different healthcare platforms. So you know, excited to, to uh, you know, talk to, to Dune Glass today. Dan and Ryan, do you want to give a quick overview of, of Dune Glass? before we jump into some questions? Yeah, that'd be great. Ryan and I started Dune Glass Capital because we wanted to combine really the best of operating expertise with healthcare M&A experience. I'm gonna have Ryan share a little bit about his background and, and where he came from, and I'll share about my background. And we just thought that that would be a great way to execute on, on thoughtful healthcare M&A opportunities on behalf of our investors. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having us, Greg and Tom. So Ryan Graham, I started out in finance for the Walt Disney Company. Spent uh, some time there and decided I wanted to get deeper in operations. So went to uh, the Kellogg Graduate School of Management at Northwestern, and that's where Dan and I actually first met. And from there, I, I did almost 15 years of management consulting. So I was deep in operations, doing everything from the revenue side, kind of looking at pricing strategy or market growth, uh, marketing opportunities to, to grow revenue. Over to the cost side, a lot of time there is looking at the supply chain or process flow improvement and finding ways to essentially all of it led to how can we drive EBITDA? How can we either increase the revenues and get more flow through or reduce the cost to make every, every dollar uh, kind of hit the bottom line? Also, had a, a background, my, my family history is heavy in medical. My, my dad is an orthopedic surgeon and there's just a lot of cousins, uncles, aunts, uh, all medical fields. So spent a lot of time around that growing up. And I think that's where a lot of Dan and my background connected. And Dan will talk a little bit more about his background and a little bit how that led to, to doing less. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Like Ryan, had significant healthcare folks in my family as well. Dad's a doctor, mom's a nurse. And I spent, we met at Kellogg, I spent after Kellogg almost 15 years in traditional private equity, where I was co-head of healthcare investing for a fund here in Chicago. And I think what we saw in the market was there was an opportunity to better partner with founder-run businesses, doctor practices in particular, who wanted to learn about private equity, but either didn't know the right questions to ask, or even if they asked the right questions, weren't always sure if they were getting a good opportunity with their existing partner. So a lot of why we created Duneglass was to help demystify the world of private equity go deep in operating expertise, and really drive great results for our partners. That's excellent. So you, you do focus exclusively on the healthcare space, is that right? Correct. We're 100% focused on the healthcare services, and you know, we do like technology. We're not afraid of technology, so I'd say technology-enabled healthcare services as well. Great. And, and do you want to tell us a little bit about some of the deals that, that you've closed and or some of the industries that you've been interested in and are continuing to be interested in into the future? Certainly. One of the things that we think about is we look at large macro trends. So this is something that's been, you know, we've been developing 
over the last 15 plus years. So we like to look at where is there going to be significant demand for healthcare services and how can we invest in the industries and the businesses that are going to serve those needs. So one of the biggest trends continues to be the aging of baby boomers into that 65-plus age bracket. So our bodies through evolution really were, up until only the the last several thousand years, were were built to last only about 40, 45 years. So if you imagine (laughs) if the average length of of, uh, life now is into the 80s, what starts to give out on the body, right? It's the joints, it's the eyes, it's the skin, it's the teeth. So there's lots of opportunities in those sectors to focus on areas where there's lots of opportunity to help patients make both medical as well as we'll call them elective health decisions, right? Your knees may not be hurting now when you're 65 years old, but if you got a knee replacement or a double knee replacement and and that allows you to have a higher quality of life from 65 to 85, that's probably a good investment. And you combine that then with the quantity of retirement account money that's sitting on the sidelines, right? So you can not only have to rely on commercial or Medicare reimbursement, but there's a lot of elective reimbursement that's out there as well that you can kind of combine forces. So we like those macro trends inside of healthcare. And then it also seems like it's, it's the golden age of biotechnology. Right, maybe it's one of the the blessings and the curses of the pandemic, but I think we're all getting more familiar with the world of biotechnology. What can be made possible, not with just necessarily large molecule pharmaceuticals, but now smaller and smaller molecule pharmaceuticals. We're not biotech investors, but there's an awful lot of industries and companies that help service those large biotech companies. So we think there's also lots of opportunity in that space as well. That's interesting. I was going to ask the question, you know, as an independent sponsor playing in the middle market to lower middle market, how do you gain exposure to those big biotech trends? It definitely makes sense with respect to orthopedics and other healthcare providers, you know, gaining exposure there, but to the big biotech type of trends. But you see the opportunity in, in sort of the companies that service that industry. Did I get that right? That's correct. We don't necessarily, we're not smart enough to know where the gold sits underneath the hills, but we're happy to sell and supply lots of picks and shovels. Yeah. So, you know, we've talked to the last couple of years, guys, and, and I've seen it, your your path and your journey toward, towards, you know, the success you've had already so far. But can you just give us a little bit more background on what appealed to you about the independent sponsor model and what made you take that leap into sourcing your first deal? You talked about your mission and your passion with partnering with founder-run businesses and, and healthcare providers, but what led down, you down the independent sponsor path and made you take that, that first leap? Yeah, I can start on that. I think our first four independent sponsor land was, because Dan mentioned what we try to build is something a little more founder-centric. And I think there was a time where Dan and I knew we wanted to work together and, and build a business, and we wanted to build it a little differently than how things have been done. I think, you know, the 2 and 20 model, the traditional private equity model, is, you know, works in a lot of situations, but in certain scenarios, there could be ways to, to structure and align your incentives with your investors. So you're more focused on the exit, more focused on growing great companies rather than putting money to work. And that's what we initially wanted to do is we wanted to work directly with smaller doctor-owned or founder-owned businesses, improve them, grow them, and then go off and sell them to private equity, traditional private equity, once we've achieved a certain scale, kind of build what they're trying to buy. 
but along the way, making a little more benefit and impact to the people like our fathers and, and mothers who, who are in the industry and, and help create these businesses. Yeah, if you think about how the size of private equity funds has grown, right? I mean, there's some great Chicago firms. I love to, to highlight Linden, right? I mean, talk about just incredible results, incredible growth. How is Linden going to continue to put that quantity of capital to work? You know, we love the fact that there's so much healthcare private equity here in Chicago. So let's help these private equity firms find great companies to buy by building them from the ground up. So Ryan mentioned kind of a departure from the two and 20 model. What we've created is, is what we call kind of doctor equity or an alternative form of private equity. This is where when we partner with groups, we're convincing them to merge 100% of their business into a combined entity. And in exchange for that, right, we're spending the time, we're taking our time together with Ryan's expertise over three, four, five years, making them more profitable, taking costs out of the business, executing on those revenue growth initiatives that they've talked about, but changing the narrative from talk to action. And by doing that, right, we can develop a lot better, more predictable EBITDA growth path. Then how we get compensated is at exit, right, Dune Glass Capital has a piece of equity that's non-dilutable that comes right off the top. So depending on the model, there's sort of 10 to 15% that goes directly to Dune Glass Capital, and that's to reward our investors and the employees of Dune Glass for the work that they've done. So we think it's a very interesting alternative to the private equity model, and, and it's definitely capturing the imagination of many of the, the doctor groups and, and founder-run businesses with whom we're partnering. That's really interesting. And it's a very unique model and, and sounds very powerful. Part of the journey, it sounds like, would be sort of educating your potential doctor groups about the benefits of private equity and, and how the different models work. The specific question is, you know, how long did it take you to close your first deal or groups of deals? and have you kind of sped up that process as you've gained more experience? But starting with the first deal, how long did that process take? Oh, so a lot of people talk about how that first deal tends to take a little bit longer to close. And I remember when we first started thinking about this, I thought, no, nah, we'll be able to do it a little bit more quickly. And even kind of joking with some other independent sponsors we know, we probably first met that practice at the end of 2018. It took a solid seven or eight months to get a signed letter of intent, and then we closed on January 1st of 2020. So it was well over a year to get that first partnership closed. And then interestingly, to, to get the second one, so our first one was in bariatric surgery. Our, our second business was in oral surgery, oral and maxillofacial surgery. And we launched that in the middle of the pandemic. So we officially launched it in July of 2020. And that was after having conversations for only six months. So it got a little bit quicker, a little bit more efficient. That business, we've already had eight tuck-in partnerships. And then from that business, we were introduced to vascular surgeons who said, hey, we want to do exactly what you're doing in oral surgery, but do it with several vascular surgeons. So that's the fun part is as you start to see your model work and watch it evolve, then you can really watch it take off as there's more and more opportunities. Great, great. So so that's interesting when you say that you're launching a platform and sort of launching into a different sector. How do you stage your discussions with your equity capital providers vis-a-vis -vis your discussions with the targets, whether it's the initial 
target company or some of the roll-ups. And I think this is pertinent not only to the healthcare space, but also all independent sponsors that are using kind of the, the buy and build strategy. Because it's not, it's not just one deal that you need to socialize and raise capital for. It's, it's more of a platform with a thesis that, that you need to think about dry powder, or is it? I'll stop there and get your thoughts on how you approach it. Yeah, Ryan and I spent a, a long time, I'm going to say raising capital for our bariatric platform, but that was as much letting folks get to know Ryan and I, right, as a team. We hadn't worked together. We'd been friends for 15 years from business school. So I think part of it was getting to know the investor community and, and letting them know kind of how we were thinking about executing. So in many ways, we were trying to plant the seeds. Even for groups that we knew weren't going to be a fit, were likely going to be no's, we wanted to show them what we're beginning to build. And I think that's really starting to pay off in spades because as we have now, now Brian and I, we've done 10 partnerships together. So we've done 10 acquisitions together over the last two years. And so when we go back to our capital sources, we can now look back and say, these are some of the things we said we were going to do, and here's how we're accomplishing them. So there's inherent credibility that comes into that conversation. Matter of fact, we're in the process of raising a little bit of capital for the vascular surgery business. And so we're going back to many of the folks who said no to the first deal, didn't have an opportunity to invest in the oral surgery platform. So now we've got a little bit of a track record to show, you know, about kind of how we're making the sausage, so to speak. So I think that makes it a little bit easier. And then good communication, right? We try to, even for the folks that aren't investors, we try to talk to them about what's going on in, in healthcare from our perspective. We get texts and phone calls and reach outs to say, hey, we're looking at this other deal from another group. What do you think about this, you know, this subsector of healthcare? Our goal is to try to provide some thought leadership, even if it's not in our wheelhouse or, or not something we're currently working on. We're happy to kind of talk about the state of play in the world of healthcare with our prospective investor universe. So it just feels like you always have to be nurturing those relationships because you just, you know, you never know. Perhaps one day we raise a fund and those will be the anchors that have gotten a chance to know us over a five or six year time period maybe never directly invested with us, but have gotten a chance to see the work product from the sidelines. Yeah, couldn't agree more with building the relationships because you never know, you know, if the next deal is going to be a perfect fit for an investor. So sort of flipping the script on that, you were talking about you socializing the Dune Glass model with, uh, with capital providers. When you turn the tables a bit and, and you're thinking about who is the ideal capital provider, what are some of the criteria or characteristics that you're, you're thinking about? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I think table stakes with any capital provider, kind of the first thing you just have to get right is the terms of the money. You want to understand, we kind of put our heads together and said, you know, here's a couple of things that we might get thrown at. What's acceptable to us between how much, you know, would we do any equity sharing or anything as far as if we were looking at debt and you know, convertible nature of it. So just understanding that, is, that, that in my mind is table stakes, but assuming you have kind of more than one partner to choose from and they have kind of equivalent terms, I think the next piece is the value add. How does them partnering with us make the whole entity better? And you know, that can be, it, it's kind of a deal by deal thing. There's not like one right, one right answer, but do we need strategic guidance? Do we need somebody who's gonna be on the board? and help us kind of plot our chart and go the right path? Or, or do we need somebody who's got a great network that we can leverage for lead generation? 
or is it somebody that has a great reputation that's going to help us attract the right management team or more funding, other other investors to join in? So it's a little bit deal by deal, but mostly it's what's that value add going to be to us? And I think lately it, it looked it was a lot about kind of just that reputational effect, a little bit of thought leadership are two things that are really important in, a, in our partners. I'd add one point too, which is having similar viewpoints on growth, right? What does it mean to grow? How do we want to execute on that growth plan? And probably one of the harder and more important concepts, when to say no to a partnership, right? How many private equity roll-ups have you seen where you, you can tell what they're doing, right? They're stuffing the pipeline right before they sell, buying a solo practitioner, 65-year-old doctor in, in rural Louisiana, not sure how that's going to really create value for the next private equity buyer. I get how it looks nice on paper where you've added another partnership and maybe opened up another state, but we want to think about growth, not for growth's sake, but growth to be very strategic. So really making sure that we're aligned when it comes to how we're executing on that growth strategy. It's not growth at all costs. That's really interesting. Uh, you know, I think you know, hearing about Ryan's management background and, and listening to the way you guys partner with with these physicians really drives home your model. You know, to that end, can you guys give a little bit more background on on some of the management strategy or you know tactics that you guys discuss with your with your partners and you know what you guys how you work with them to uh, to implement some of those strategies? We're spending a lot of time in the physician practice management space, so. The key is making sure that we've got a playbook that we can roll out for our management services organization every single time. We have a two-by-two grid that Ryan helped us develop, and it's kind of equity value creation on one side and its degree of difficulty on the other side. So, you know, there's certain things that are table stakes. We have to get right 100% of the time. Those are core functions that Ryan and his team roll out for all of our MSO activities. Those would be the high equity value creation, you know, call them both low degree of difficulty and high degree of difficulty. So the low degree of difficulty, you got to do those right 100% of the time. Back office processing, benefits administration, learning how to, to attract and retain great talent as you're adding employees to the MSO. As you go from high equity value creation to high degree of difficulty, those are, you know, I'm going to call them kind of the, the sniper rifle shots. You got to be ready to hire great executives that bring significant backgrounds. And those are expensive folks, right? They're probably expensive to hire and probably have requirements to, to provide some equity incentives for them to join. So those are important to layer into the model at the right time. And then there's some value traps, right? We kind of joke about it. And there's, there's some classic mistakes that we've watched private equity firms make where you read about a trend and you say, oh, we're just going to do that for every single partnership we do in this model. You know, that would be kind of your low equity value creation, you know, high degree of difficulty, centralized call centers, forcing everybody onto the same IT platform without regard to how that might impact patient workflow. Uh, so there's some of those things that we try to be more mindful of. So it's, it's having a construct. I mean, I think the benefit here is Ryan and I now, I've done seven of these. So Ryan's on his third. And so we've really been doing this for quite some time. You know, I go back to my, my days at my old private equity firm and kind of championed the very first physician practice management partnerships that they ever did. So thinking back about how many times we've done it, it's just making sure that we have a playbook, we refine it, we revise it from time to time, and then you roll it out consistently. 
it's great to see the years of experience kind of, kind of paying off with those learnings that you're able to implement. So really appreciate it, uh, Ryan and Dan, as, as we're coming up on time here, just wanted to get your thoughts on a final question we ask a, a lot of our guests. The independent sponsor model generally has grown quite a bit over the last couple of years. And as you look to the future, what do you see as far as the growth trajectory of the independent sponsor model? And are there changes to the model that you would envision over the coming years? That's a good question. I think we're going to see more independent sponsors, not less. It seems like a lot of the folks that have, have created kind of their own groups have spun out of the traditional private equity firms, and those numbers have grown quite a bit. We just had a a group from Kane Brothers present to us, and he said, look, 10 years ago, we were talking to probably 30 or 40 private equity sponsors in the healthcare world, and yeah, you could know them pretty well. Fast forward to today, and he, and he said that same list is well over 200 just in North America, and that's where their primary focus is. So if you think about the explosive growth in private equity, not all of them are going to have you know, winning track records, and so there's going to be a number of folks that become available, get get a little bit of opportunities to get some some partnerships done and develop their own small track record. And my guess is they probably want to spin out at some point and, and call their own shots. So it feels like you've got the, I don't know, the hallmarks for allowing for more independent sponsors to be created. And then on the capital side, right? I mean, the, the explosion in groups, family offices, others that want to put capital to work in the world of private equity just seems like there's a lot of capital sources. So then it comes down to Ryan's point earlier, right? It really boils down to terms. Do we feel like these are going to be good partners? Are they going to reward the independent sponsor for their hard work? Or are they going to try to make it a little bit more difficult to, to earn the upside that folks that are starting starting out on the first time want to, to try to do? But it's really been exciting seeing you guys, you know, from, from your infancy to, to where you're at now. I mean, you guys have been super successful just in, in a few years. And we're really excited to see where you guys go next. Really enjoyed speaking to you guys today, and Greg, I know you do too. Yeah, yeah, Dan, Ryan, and then and then Tom. Thanks so much for your time. This has been a really great conversation. Appreciate it. Thanks, Greg and Tom. Appreciate you having us on, and look forward to talking again soon. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Deal by Deal a McGuire Woods Independent Sponsor Podcast. To learn more about today's discussion and our commitment to the independent sponsor community, please visit our website at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.